No continent has suffered economically more than Africa has during the COVID crisis. It's, it's a well-known fact. And part of the reason is because you can't open up your economies aggressively enough because you haven't vaccinated enough people. We're at a very critical phase. The next 12 months are critical. We're going to be make or break in the next 12 months. Thank you for joining us on the Titans of Industry podcast series with me, Lenia Swenda. Today, I am in conversation with the titan of the industry in Africa, Stavros Nikolaou, the Group Senior Executive for Strategic Trade and Development at Aspen Pharmacare Group in South Africa. Stavros was previously the CEO of Aspen's export business, Aspen being Africa's largest pharmaceutical manufacturer and a world leader in anesthetics and injectable anticoagulants. Stavros. Welcome to the HSS podcast. Dennis, thanks uh, very much for this opportunity, and I look forward to the conversation. Stavros, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's talk about health in Africa. You were instrumental in introducing the first generic antiretroviral on the African continent, which was developed by Aspen. Can you just begin by telling us how Aspen got involved in HIV generics and the kind of impact you've had with that first step that you took as Aspen Pharmacare Group in South Africa and on the continent? Dennis, no conversation on healthcare in Africa would be complete if we did not highlight that the continent continues to have the most disproportionate disease burden of England. Now, typically, Africa has been characterized uh, over many years and decades with a, a high infectious disease burden, but we are now starting to see a rising tide of non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other chronic conditions. So this is almost a, a, a perfect storm that we're starting to see on the continent. And of course, um, one of the drivers of this disproportionate disease burden has been HIV and tuberculosis. And as a company, uh, Around 20 years ago, when we started getting to grips as a country, South Africa, and as a continent, with the magnitude of the HIV calamity that was facing us, the Aspen management team sat back and said, well, what is it that we can do to assist the situation? Now, we were a fairly young organization then. In fact, we were only 23 years old in our present form. And we decided that the best way we could respond was to produce high-quality, affordable antiretrovirals. Now, in those days, um, the cost of a first-line triple cocktail antiretroviral treatment was between five dollars to $10,000 per patient per year, clearly inaccessible and unaffordable to most Africans. And we had to change it. Now, there were many different options, and there was a lot of policy discussion and back and forth at the time. And uh, Aspen thought, well, the best way to manage this is to sit around a table with the various stakeholders and look to conclude what we now know are voluntary licenses. So we, we had discussions with various multinational partners, with governments. Um, of course, civil society played a role in this, um, in that they ratcheted up the pressure for accessible and affordable treatment. So it was a culmination of all of these elements, getting them all together, lining them all. And we said to our multinational partners that um, you can trust our manufacturing, you can trust our ability to get the products uh, to market, our distribution networks. We just need you to trust us with a license. So instead of going the route of compulsory licensing or breaking and or infringing patents, this was a much more palatable uh, option for everyone. It was a win-win actually for everyone. And we landed our first license. It wasn't in fact even a license. It was an immunity of suit with Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, this was in the early 2000s. And a very pleasing and proud moment for Aspen was in 2003, we launched the first 
uh, African generic antiretroviral pioneered by an African company. It was for stabudine, which is a first-line treatment in those days for, uh, for HIV. Um, it, the, the brand we launched was called Aspen Stabudine, and that was a first for the continent. What it did do at that point is it galvanized a number of other conversations and licenses with the likes of GSK, Boring, Engelheim, Merck, and eventually Gilead, which I'll tell you a bit about in a moment. The Gilead one was quite interesting. And uh, all told, we were able to reduce the price of these antiretrovirals down to around $180 per patient per year. So significantly down from the previous price tag that I spoke about. Um, of course, what this did is it provided immediate access to, to many thousands of patients in South Africa and on the African continent. And I think the rest is history because um, it would not be an understatement to say, um, had our country here, South Africa, not taken that route, um, had we have not opened up uh, accessibility to these products, many hundreds of thousands or more of our countrymen uh, both uh, South African and continental countrymen would have perished. And I think the pandemic would have escalated probably out of control at that point in time. Now, there are just two other factors I want to uh, speak about for a moment. And that is, uh, I mentioned Gilead earlier. So these voluntary license arrangements, which um, have now become very much a trend, it's a trend setting, uh, uh, um, it's a trend setter now. So you have a lot of these voluntary licenses for various uh, infectious diseases. Um, we're seeing the same conversation taking place for antivirals that are being used in, in COVID treatment, for example. So what we did is, as we moved along speaking to the licensors, so too the licensing arrangements evolved. And we got into a relationship as Aspen with Gilead. Now, Gilead had, at that time, silver bullet for HIV. It was called, and still is called, Tenofova. And that agreement that we signed with them was a voluntary license, um, technology transfer, manufacturing, and distribution agreement. So now, for the first time, there was a technology transfer element to that. And that was quite a game changer. Um, because it was now uh, a big multinational R&D company trusting an African company, uh, Aspen, with its, uh, with its technologies, with its intellectual data, and with its intellectual property. And we produced Gilead's product under the Gilead brand name. We also developed our own generic later on. But this was another new trend that emerged out of how these licensing arrangements evolved. It also opened up the space for Aspen to become the first uh, generic company. At that time, we were a generic company. We're a very different business today, two decades on. But at that time, we were the first generic company in the world to receive uh, approval from the US, the US FDA, which we know is the most stringent regulator in the world, on an expedited approval basis for an antiretroviral under the PEPFAR program. So that was a world first. And we're very proud that it happened in, in Africa and in South Africa. And that opened up further access opportunities for patients who were receiving uh, medicines under the PEPFAR arrangements. Um, so these were, in, in summary, what did this all of this achieve? I think it achieved a new model of collaboration between the R&D-based industry and, and African companies. Um, it allowed us to build capacity on the African continent. Um, and building local capacity is important in terms of solving local problems. We've seen that with the vaccines, and I'm sure we'll discuss vaccines shortly. But if you don't have your own capacity and you're not master of your own destiny, then you are inevitably going to be at the back of the queue. And that's what we've witnessed on the African continent with vaccines. 
So ARV was quite interesting in that um, it, it placed a new level of trust on, on an African manufacturer, Aspen. And then we started facing the next regional epidemic, which was multi-drug resistant TB. And uh, th this came sort of immediately after HIV. This was in around 2005, if I recall correctly. Uh, there was an outbreak in Tugela Valley in KwaZulu-Natal, and 66 of the 69 infected uh, patients uh, died almost immediately. So the mortality rates were exceedingly high, and we were facing, off the back of the HIV uh, problem, we were facing a new calamity. And again, Aspen was able to partner with an American R&D-based company, Midwest-based Eli Lilly. Uh, we entered into a license technology transfer uh, CapEx arrangement because they invested in CapEx and manufacturing and distribution arrangement for two multi-drug resistant TB drugs. This made, again, these drugs accessible to those patients who needed these drugs, remembering that there were very few treatment options at that point in time for multi-drug resistant TB. So you got MDR-TB, you were pretty much on death row waiting for the executioner. And again, Aspen was able to, in a very short space of time for the second time, step in, partner an R&D-based company and provide local solutions for local problems, MDR-TB. That's a, an incredible story that really highlights this, the power of collaboration, you know, how Aspen has pioneered, um, you know, this, this intelligent cooperation with the international, uh, with other international sort of companies that are involved in R&D develop, development to tackle this perfect storm to develop products that are needed and bring you know products that are lacking for example for MDR uh, uh, TB and and to, to really help the continent move forward and and that is in fact the kind of collaborations that we need to see more of now as we look at how we move forward from this moment where Africa has vaccinated less than 3% of its population and for, for COVID-19, and we are indeed in, in, in desperate need for greater manufacturing capacity for, for vaccines. But today, Stavros, what I would really like us to do is to, to maybe to take a step back and, and, and make an appraisal of how Africa's farmer and, and vaccine manufacturing project that the African Union and all the African countries has uh, set forth um, is developing in just to explore what progress we are making, whether that progress is meaningful and likely to be sustained over time. So let's start by looking at, at, at the progress towards the ambition to expand manufacturing capacity, help us to, to get a sober view of where we are right now. There's a lot of hype around it, but you know, really let's take a sober view to see, are we taking the right steps? Lenius, firstly, there's a public health aspect to your question, but there's also an economic and industrialization aspect. And you, you cannot segregate the two, the two are interrelated. And a, a good starting point for me to, to preface is that uh, as I indicated at the outset of, of this podcast, Africa has the most disproportionate disease burden, a population in excess of 1.3 billion. So there are significant volumes, medicine volumes, that reside in the African continent. Regrettably, what we've done is we've outsourced all of those volumes to the rest of the world. So we're not producing anywhere near uh, what we should be producing on the continent. The continent is a serial and net uh, importer of medicines, uh, which doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. I mean, if you've got one of the worst disease burden of any continent and you've got significant volumes, you should be leveraging those volumes to produce locally on your own continent. So put differently, the continent is saddled with a significant pharmaceutical trade deficit. And that trade deficit keeps growing. Uh, it, it's not reducing. And I think 
the COVID and vaccine conversation has opened up a really new, a, a, a really good space to recalibrate all of this. And there is a, as we speak right now, a significant recalibration taking place. So how have we done and how are we doing? Uh, there, there have been very small pockets of success. Um, certainly Aspen has been very successful in positioning itself uh, uh, both domestically and globally, but we've achieved that by moving up the value chain. So we've, in, you know, we've uh, taken a strategic decision um, over the past decade or so. We've uh, we've been through various transitions and evolutions in our own business over the last 23 years, and we've moved up the value chain to the extent that we are a significant global player now in sterile manufacture, for example. Uh, we are also a world leader in a number of speciality therapeutic areas, such as, for example, anesthesia. Uh, Aspen is the largest supplier and manufacturer um, of anesthetic products. So these are general, regional and topical anesthetics um, outside of the United States. So it's, you know, if you ever doubted an Africa or an African company, I think Aspen's proven, uh, the, you know, the detractors wrong in that you can occupy global leadership positions out of Africa. And I'll come back to that in a few moments. Uh, but just to answer your question directly, there are very few uh, Aspens on the continent. Okay, So we haven't done well overall. But I think what's more important for me is not to dwell on the past or what we've done badly. There is a new opportunity now with COVID because what has COVID taught us in these last uh, 18 to 20 months. Okay, It's taught us many, many different things. We've seen some seismic changes, but the agile narrative that Africa is at the back of the queue continues to prevail. And as you correctly said, um, you know, three or 4% only of, um, of, of the global vaccines, COVID vaccines that have been administered have gone into African uh, arms, jabs in African arms. So we know that uh, at, as at yesterday's count, there were 6.7 billion uh, doses of COVID vaccine administered globally. And we know that Africa has received 3% or less of those. It's an unacceptable position to be in, right? Why are we in that position? We're in that position because we didn't have our own domestic capacities. We now have it uh, through, you know, Aspen and the Johnson & Johnson collaboration, um, which is really important because um, you're now starting to see several millions of doses of the Aspen-produced J&J COVID vaccine flowing into African markets. Okay. But there's been a delay in getting there because we had to set up this capability we should have that capability existing immediately to respond immediately to pandemics. So this notion of solidarity, um, when COVID, uh, you know, when at the onset of COVID, when it commenced last January, January 2020, there was a whole notion that, you know, the world must stand together and we're going to approach this on a solidarity basis. And what happens in reality is a very different picture. And we've seen it in the statistics. I've just mentioned, and what you mentioned, Lenius, bear all of this out. So bottom line here is that Africa needs to relook at its policies. Uh, it is relooking at those, but we need to start walking the talk because uh, I've been in the industry a long time, and, and every year I wake up to a new African pharmaceutical production plan. Okay? But we don't really implement these plans, and that's the problem. So while we um, are grappling about how we implement them. The, uh, the Asian exporters are flooding the market here in Africa, and you never get on top of it. So part of the problem, let me just summarize then, is three things. These are the three things we need to do, I believe. Number one, what's really encouraged me um, during COVID is under the steer and leadership of Straub Masiyiwa and Avid, the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, you're starting to see for the first time the aggregation of African volumes. So you're starting to aggregate the volumes of vaccines. Okay, now, when you start aggregating, it starts giving you purchasing power on the continent. 
and you can stand up to all the other people that are doing the procurement on your behalf. So we've had a problem historically in that uh, we've depended a lot on donor funds and multilateral agencies to do the procurement for Africa, but they're not procuring from African companies. So African companies never really get a head start here. So it's all going largely to Asians and we're building economies and industries, creating jobs and tax bases in countries like India and China, for example, at the expense of our very own people and or industries here. So then we continue to lag with unemployment statistics, trade deficits like the ones I mentioned, because we're not taking advantage of an aggregated market. So that's number one that we have to do. We have to have a coordinated aggregate market. Number two, this aggregated market, when you put it in place, has to buy from African companies. Uh, it's no good putting up facilities and those facilities turn into white elephants and you shut them down two years later. Like your first, you're not going to attract investment, neither foreign nor domestic investment. Um, if you've got this, uh, I call it, uh, you know, I call it a roller coaster effect because, uh, you know, governments buy from your agencies, buy from you, and then they go back to India and, you know, the volumes drop again. And all that you're already doing is you are, are chasing away African investment and you're turning African facilities into white elephants. Now, a continent is well known for the other type of elephants, right? The elephants you see in safaris. We should stick to those elephants and not have white elephants on the continent. Okay, so number two, we need a reorientation of the procurement mechanisms and dynamics on the continent. So we need to say to these agencies, they are well-intentioned, however, they are not helping to solve local problems. They are, in fact, perpetuating the problem. So they need to reorientate part of their procurement to buying from African companies so that we can sustain African investments and African producers. There are far too many plants on the continent that over the last five or six decades have either been mothballed, closed down, or outright divested because of this very problem that I'm speaking about. So we need multilateral agencies, procurement agencies, and African governments to buy from African companies. We mustn't be lulled into this pricing debate because it's a temporary debate. And all it aims to achieve is to sustain uh, regrettably exports into the continent. Now, we should become our own local producers on the continent with uh, creating tax bases on our continent, creating jobs, opportunities for our young people, retaining our skills, and start to, in, starting to expand our technology bases and platforms on the continent so that we never left again in the lurch like we were with vaccines. So that's number two. Okay. Number three is the policy environment. <clears throat> and this is uh, AU specific, but it's also individual country specific from each of the African countries. So each country no doubt has some degree of, each country on the African continent has some degree of localization policy. But localization policy, uh, if, it, if it's not implementable or implemented, right, lands up exacerbating the problem because you can talk about localization and if you don't implement it, eventually your investors turn to other industries and sectors and you reopen up the space again for exporters to come in and occupy that space. So localization for me means governments on the continent have to set aside capacities, existing and new capacities uh, for local producers. You can achieve this through long-term contracts with guaranteed offtakes. Okay, so I'm gonna use an example in South Africa. And we were talking about antiretrovirals and HIV earlier on uh, Lenius. So antiretrovirals uh, are the, are the uh, single biggest product by volume and value in South Africa. 
So every month we dispense as a country between five and five and a half million packs of antiretrovirals. So that means we consume over 60 million packs a year. Uh, it's, it's a really sad indictment where we are at the moment that we are importing uh, 65 to 70% of South Africa's ALV requirement. Now, that's an unacceptable and an untenable situation because you're not optimizing your local capacity. By not optimizing your local capacity, you're losing out on both security of supply. So I'm speaking to the public health uh, imperative here because we should never lose sight in whatever decision you take. Your, your primary focus in life, and this is a business philosophy of Aspen's, your, your primary focus in life as a pharma company is, is to save lives and improve the quality of, uh, of the population, quality of life for the population. And that's, your, that's the reason you wake up every morning. So when I wake up every morning, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go out and save lives and improve the quality of life of, of the population. That's what I do for a living. And that is a business philosophy that is important to place at the front and center of your company. So having said that, uh, there is a strong argument that you best achieve security of supply, as we've seen with vaccines, if you've got your own local manufacturer. So local manufacture and security of supply can be achieved through local preferences. Now, in South Africa, we've got a mechanism called designation. Now, designation means the law allows you to designate a certain volume of a tender for local production. We are not utilizing, certainly the National Health Department in South Africa is not utilizing that instrument, which is a, can be a very successful instrument. It's not using it. And it ought to be using it because when it has been used in the past, it's, in, it's been a, a very effective instrumental tool in localizing certain products. And so my recommendation for the continent would be at a policy level, keep your localization or local procurement instruments relatively simple. What is a very effective way of doing this is look at your existing capacities and fully utilize those existing capacities by giving your local manufacturers long-term contracts. You can't give people two years contracts and then they lose all the, the volumes and they go out of business and they retrench people, et cetera. You've got to, it's, it's uh, you know, any investor is going to want a long-term certainty to realize a return on the investment. So if you were putting up a power plant, imagine telling uh, the investor that we will, we'll, give you, we'll give you the contract for two years. No one will put up a power plant, right? They're going to want a 20-year offtake. So it's no different in investing in pharmaceuticals. And unfortunately, it's, it's the procurement agencies that I spoke about who are buying in these uh, cyclical fashions where you get two or three-year cycles that are disrupting the market. And uh, I know it's well-intentioned on their part, but we need to change it. And you can change it by getting these agencies to buy locally from local companies, but also internally, this is my third point that I've been emphasizing, the, the, the third of the three points I was making. We also need our own governments uh, to set aside or designate local capacities for local producers. That in itself will attract more investment, retain skills. It will allow you to bring in new technologies. It will start reversing this very troublesome uh, trade deficit that we are seeing on the continent. So those are my three recommendations for the continent, for multilateral agencies, and specifically for governments in the AU. Indeed, it's it's actually really great points in, in terms of you know what needs to happen for us to realize that 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 ambition that we have to move from where we are to a position of self-sufficiency based on uh, security of access because we have built a manufacturing base and industry that can supply that. But it, it makes me wonder, uh, Stavros, when you say, you know, you, know, you know, the fact that we don't have more Aspens on the continent, I, I often wonder why that is. And it seems to me, it's very important to understand 
why that hasn't happened, why we haven't had more Aspens on the continent for us to, to avoid those potential pitfalls going forward from where we are. So we can generate more Aspens, less white elephants on the continent. And the point you make about the, the policy being very important, uh, and, and it seems it's not necessarily that the policy instruments aren't there that are required and always there in all cases. You mentioned South Africa, which has this instrument for designation, which you say that is underutilized. Why is it that we, we, we are not able to make use? Obviously, that policy instrument was put in place to ensure security for South Africans to build the industrial base in South Africa. Why is it so underutilized? in South Africa and in other countries, those kinds of policy instruments. So talking uh, again uh, on the South African situation, right? And, and I think many commentators uh, on, on the country and uh, many international investor con commentators um, have raised this point repeatedly that we, we're very good at formulating policies, but not so good at implementing policies, right? And it's almost uh, a case of we, we, we scared to take long-term decisions on the continent. We talk about them because, you know, putting up manufacturing is a long-term decision. It's, it's not uh, the here and now. You're only going to realize the benefits in the medium to long-term. So we kind of start looking at that, but then we, we get lulled into... A, a different sense of reality when, uh, you know, an exporter flies in and says, well, I can offer you this at, and the following, right? And then uh, the eye gets taken off the ball and you deviate from the long-term plan because you're looking at the here and now. So we've got to, we've got to stop this short-term approach on the continent and we've got to look longer term. You know, all these successful countries that have industrialized around the world, they've got a long-term plan. So we've got to stop the short-term, uh, almost myopic uh, implementation that we have, and we've got to we've got to have the courage of our conviction and follow our uh, sorry implement our policies, and and do so for the duration. We mustn't lose our nerve halfway through and say, oh gosh, gosh, we're going to have to default back to the exporters. We've got to stay the course. And I think that's our single biggest uh, failing right now. The second and final point around this question I wanted to make is Africans also need to believe in themselves. Um, I've experienced uh, Afro-pessimism by our own people on the continent. Um, I, I always regale a story when, um, when I was much younger in Aspen, um, as you indicated, I used to head up the export business. And I, I remember on a trip to, uh, to West Africa once, um, I had a discussion with a local supplier. He was, uh, he was invested in his country. Um, and, and we had this very discussion that we've got to, we've got to increase intra-country trade. And we've got to start buying from Africa. So we build up the African economies. We build up industrial capacity on the continent and we start taking our rightful place globally. So have all these discussions and a commitment to buy, but then uh, two days later, I'm flying out of the same airport that this uh, gentleman is and he's off to Paris. Okay? And he's telling me his kids are in Paris, they're studying and he's going to Paris to buy trucks. Okay. So we've got to again, have the courage of our own, conviction. We've got to believe, and Aspen has shown the way. As I said to you, we are world leaders in anesthesia. We, are, we occupy a, uh, a, a global leadership position in injectable thrombosis. And these are not uh, products that are, are easy to make. These are, are difficult products to manufacture. And it's a real feather in our cap, and it speaks volumes for our scientific and technical capabilities that we're able to occupy leadership positions. Um, during the first and second waves of, of COVID, because we uh, occupy a leadership position, and I'm not saying this glibly or insensitively, 
but there was a high demand for aspens, anesthetic and muscle relaxant products because that's what you use to ventilate patients in, in ICU. And we had a number of African heads of state phoning our CEO, Stephen Saad, and asking him, please, we need your help. Please supply products. We run out of products. People are dying. They need to be ventilated. Now, these are European governments phoning an African company to ask for assistance. Okay. I'm not being insensitive around because there was a public, uh, a public health emergency how that had to be dealt with. But we have proven that Africans can do it and African companies can do it. So we also need to start believing in ourselves, our own brands, and we need to push our governments. We need to push those multilateral agencies to say, listen, we've got confidence in our own products. We've got the capability and capacity of the continent. Direct the procurement to these African companies. Join us as we continue our conversation with Stavros Nicolau, the group's senior executive at Aspen Pharmacare in South Africa, as we continue our conversation taking stock of progress being made on the African continent towards vaccine manufacturing. You know, when, you, when you're speaking, it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Dr. John Kengersong. Um, we were discussing an article that had been published in the British Medical Journal that said, you know, the, the, the foundation for pharmaceutical uh, industry is regulatory finance and, um, you know, know-how and workforce and so forth. And Africa doesn't have any of those things. And yet here we are discussing the, the you know, a, a pharmaceutical multinational corporation that has been supplying the world, serving the world with products made on the African continent. So really, it, it, it really makes your point very well that sometimes the Afro-pessimism, you know, from ourselves, but also from others doubting what Africa is capable of really can and is holding Africa back. Now, going back to the point about the market, because that's very critical. You mentioned a number of things that needs to happen in order to make sure that the businesses that are being built, the industrialization around pharmaceutical manufacturing actually can succeed, these businesses don't employed implode, but it is not a given. I see two challenges in terms of market access. One that you just mentioned of, of international mechanism, not buying from local businesses but the second one um being that um you know the lack of long-term planning that businesses aren't given by our own governments that security of 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 market that long-term contracts provide then i see a third challenge which is that it's not a given also that african people ourselves will accept African-made products. We've been working in supply chain management as medicines for Africa going in different countries. And quite often you meet this rejection of products made in Africa in preference for products that are coming from Europe and, and other places. What needs to be done, Stavros, to make sure that African products are accepted by African consumers, but also to make sure that the international mechanisms are really also purchasing and procuring in a way that enables this industry that we are building so that we can have more aspens that serves the world and contributes to security of supply globally, not just on the African continent, as you have shown can be done. The first thing we need to do is we, we need to be in a position to determine market shaping. Because if you do, if you determine market shaping, you then are, are influential in the market uh, access uh, discussion. Right? I believe part of the reason that our own people on the continent uh, sometimes have a loss of confidence in their own brands is because of these disruptive procurement cycles. So very often product has found its way to the market. Then you put a local business out of business and they stop supplying the product. 
Okay, or their product is still on the market, but it gets displaced by an exporter's product. So these disruptive cycles do very little to instill confidence in our own African consumers. So part of changing these procurement, uh, these procurement dynamics and mechanisms uh, will go some way to restoring confidence because no consumer wants to be using a medicine only to find out tomorrow they've been switched to a different medicine, an imported medicine, or that the product's no longer available because a company went out of business because they couldn't sustain their domestic capacities, right? So that's a, it, it really ties in quite strongly with what I was saying earlier. Having the ability to shape the market is in itself going to be critical to instilling confidence and trust in the brands, the African brands. No one's going to trust a brand if you're supplying it today and tomorrow you can't supply it, and then you try and come back in two years' time. You know, consumers want certainty and predictability around the brands they're going to take, particularly medicine brands. So that's the first thing we've got to do. The, the second thing is that if I'm going back to the policy discussion we had a few minutes ago, if our very own governments on the continent are not supporting the localization objective and imperative. What that means is our own companies are going to struggle. And then you're going to start having quality slipping and the likes thereof. Now, Aspen's very different because we've got the balance sheet to sustain this and we've got a truly global business. But not everybody is in that position on the continent. So if you don't support your local industry, like the Asians do, like the Europeans do. I mean, let's have a look at what happened with vaccine manufacture. Look at how much money was plowed by governments uh, into companies to produce a vaccine locally. Let's look at the United States, billions of dollars. Uh, organizations or agencies like the Bill and Melinda Gates made funding available to, to for example, Indian manufacturers. The European governments put money into R&D and manufacture of these products. Okay. Now, perhaps our governments on the African continent don't have the same fiscal uh, capacity or regal room. Okay. Now, if you don't have that, what you should do is you should be using all the policy levers and instruments that you have at your disposal to ensure that you entrench your local producers. And this would include things like expedited registration of locally produced products, set-asides or designation, like I spoke about earlier. These are the things that will keep the products in market and build consumer confidence, trust, and credibility for our own companies. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, with the last points that you make, the, the, the coming into effect of the African Medicines Agency, hopefully that's going to actually enable that, that expedition of registration timelines so that, and, and also, you know, the capacity of, of regulatory authorities, but it seems the investment, what governments are doing and the policies that they put in place is really critical to, to that, to that to, to whether you're able to keep products on the market so that they are not in and out of the market and damaging confidence because you know, patients have to change to other brands, but also companies can have confidence in investing in quality improvements. Uh, but now going back to the market shaping, activities. We've had many conversations about this. And what I'm curious about is what concrete actions we should be taking, we should be seeing at the African Union level, at the country level, in order to make sure that market uh, local manufacturers will have a market um, when the, the, those businesses start to mature. You know, like, for instance, many uh, countries are going to be graduating from the Gavi purchasing mechanism. Are you seeing the right kind of conversations happening about what needs to happen, for example, because that seems to me like a low hanging fruit in terms of how we start to shape the market. We can start with those countries that are already no longer bound by those mechanisms with the choice. What conversations are happening in order to make sure that we channel those countries in the right direction in order to, to, to shape the market in a way that serves 
local production of medicines and vaccines on the continent? Yeah, let me firstly, at the outset, uh, commend and congratulate a number of leaders on the continent. Uh, let me start off with President Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, in his capacity as, as, as head of the African Union, uh, when he served his term last year, uh, 2020, one of his priorities was the African uh, COVID response. And one of the things he did is he set up what is now known as, as ABAT, the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team. And he did so by realizing and understanding that we are a highly fragmented and fractured continent. We're not, you know, we talk all the time that we're a market of 1.3 billion, but yet uh, those volumes and those, those economies of scale are diluted because no one has gone and aggregated those volumes. And we've left it to other people to determine how we aggregate our very own volumes. So we're not in control of our own volumes on the continent. Now, he realized that. So let me commend the second person now. And that's, that's Mr. Strive Masiwa, who is a very prominent entrepreneur on the continent. And when he was appointed by President Ramaphosa as the AU Special Envoy on COVID, I think a lot of people uh, were a little surprised and they said, no, but he's not a healthcare, pharmaceutical, medical person. He's, uh, you know, he's an RCT, mobile, he understands mobile networks. But what he has done is he's actually brought a commercial acumen that didn't exist previously. And he's driven, led by example, because he understands this, the aggregation of volumes on the continent. So he's aggregated for the first time the volumes, the COVID vaccine volumes. He's starting there, and I believe he'll move into other areas as well. And then let me also commend the third and final person. That's uh, Dr. John Kedisang, um, who's provided the technical backup to what Strive has been doing. So where am I going with all of this? We are now starting to see the foundations for the first time of an, an aggregated purchasing model on the continent. And when you get that, you can start addressing the regulatory aspects and all the other aspects that are important. So this is a starting point for me. So what must the continent do? I think we've got to start with where our strengths lie and where our volumes are on the continent. So we know, for example, we consume a lot of vaccines. Um, not enough, by the way, in that we are still underinvested per capita in vaccines. And if you've got the worst disease burden of any continent, you should be investing more in prophylaxis and vaccines, preventative healthcare. I see vaccines as being preventative. They definitely, we all know they're not therapeutic, they're preventative. And if you've got such a big disease burden, then preventative health vaccines become critical. So we start, we've got to start there. Look at those, localize your vaccines. What are the other big uh, therapeutic areas and or highly consumed pharmaceutical products? I've spoken about ARVs. So you've got to go through these high volume therapeutic areas systematically, look at what capacity you have on the continent and match that capacity with these high volume products. But you must always, in life, when you're looking at things commercially, you must always focus on where your strengths lie. And if South Africa has a particular strength in a particular area therapeutically, and then Kenya has a different strength, you've got to see how you apply complementarity, uh, sorry, complementarity and synergy. We have to synergize. So in short, if I had to put a three-point plan moving forward, number one, aggregate the volumes. Okay, number two, uh, have a mechanism where there's uh, accountability on implementing localization policies. And number three, synergize and uh, apply complementarity across the continent. And let's just have one common vision. What is my vision for pharmaceutical manufacturing on the continent? My vision is that we make a significant dent into the continent's trade deficit. When we start doing that, okay, then we are starting to succeed. 
absolutely accountability for me is, is really actually one of the most important things to make sure that things actually you know are done in a way that serves the needs of the continent but thinking of you know just dwelling a little bit longer on aggregation so at a global level we have different institutions that are responsible for aggregating. We have products in different therapeutic areas. We have the Global Fund looking at HIV, malaria, and TB. We have UNICEF and Gavi who are just doing childhood vaccines. And then, you know, we have others that are looking at tuberculosis and so forth. Now, is one agency enough? So, you know, commending our leaders for, for, for of course, creating these structures for the first time we are seeing them come into effect and we have a tool to allow us to aggregate the market there has been um, you know I'm sure we will need to take that forward in a meaningful way but can a single agency be well equipped to handle all of the different therapeutic areas given the huge needs on the continent or do you see us needing more mechanism to make sure that we cover the different therapeutic areas in a meaningful and um, you know a practical way that 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 works. Linus, I'm a great believer that you have to start somewhere in life, right? Okay, because we, we of course we can analyze all the different areas, and then it it just overwhelms you. I think what we need to do is we need to start with two areas on the continent. We got to say, look the. The total bill for vaccines is several billions. I'm just making up these numbers, right? Let's say it's two, it's 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 a billion dollars. Let's say, for example, and then on ARVs, it's uh, it's five billion dollars. I'm just making up these numbers, right? We've got to say we're going to focus on those two for the next three years, and in those two. We already know that the continent imports just over 99%, so almost 100% of its uh, vaccine requirements, right? We, we make very, there are few pockets of manufacture on the continent. Senegal, now South Africa with Aspen will make a significant dent through COVID, right? So we've got to focus on those two and say, look, by, uh, you know, but today's 2021, by 2024, uh, you know, X volume, X value of the billion and five billion I spoke about has to be produced locally. And that's where we're going to focus all our attention, all our resources, and all our skills and competence on the continent. And then we'll tackle the next one in the room, right? Which might be diabetes, for example. But uh, I think if you try and, um, you know, and I'm sorry I'm being so cliched, you know, if you, if you try and eat the elephant all at once, you, you're never going to succeed. You won't even eat the tail, let alone the trunk and, and all the rest. So let's just focus on two areas, but let's get it done. Let's not talk about it. We keep talking about it. and We keep lamenting our plot, but we've got to start somewhere. And in life, you've got to be focused. And let's be focused on those two therapeutic areas Let's make a big dent in those. We'll have a lot of a lot to be proud of when we achieve that. Nothing, you know, nothing sort of gives you more pleasure in life than when you've built something. It's it's, it's not about uh, you know we're all on this planet for a finite time, and and there's nothing uh, more rewarding and enriching than if, you, if you've built something. Now, isn't it wonderful? to build our own capacities on the continent, to have our own young people on the continent, excelling in science, uh, holding their own with the Europeans and the Asians and the Americans, and that we retain these skills. I mean, nothing saddens me more. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting a bit old here, Lenius, but I've got kids at art university now, and I just hear about their friends leaving because they're going to go and pursue careers elsewhere in the world. Wouldn't it be fantastic? that we retain all these young, talented people on our continent. Won't that be a wonderful moment when we do that? But we, uh, talking about ourselves here now, we have to make sure that happens. So we've got to implement and talk less. Absolutely. More action and, indeed, lessons on how to eat an elephant 
in terms of you know figuring out how we aggregate the African market in a way that serves us. And it would be great to retain all the talent that we lose. We lose so much on the African uh, continent that should be helping us to think through these, these problems. But what about finance, Stavros? Are you seeing the right kind of financing vehicles being created with the right kind of conditions that would actually enable the industry, the, this industrialization project um, to take off uh, finance that is affordable, that will ensure that companies have mm -hmm. adequate funds that they need to, to fund the development of this and, and reach maturity. Look, in this conversation or the context of the question, we're really talking about development fund agencies, DFRs primarily. Now, the DFRs exist, but there's been a complete mismatch between what a DFR offers and what a, uh, an entrepreneur or a small business requires. Okay. There's a complete mismatch. So the requirements of a DFR are, are usually uh, the antithesis to what a, uh, a budding entrepreneur needs. So we need, uh, I believe the funding is there, but no DFR is going to sponsor or fund a, a, a small business or an entrepreneur if you've got these erratic procurement cycles that I spoke about earlier. So all that's learning, all that's happening is these DFR apply, they're, they're applying uh, their financing packages to the wrong people because the, the budding entrepreneurs don't meet the criteria and they can't meet the criteria because they don't have offtakes. So I'm going right back to the initial discussion we had at the outset of this, of this podcast, that um, unless you start giving your own entrepreneurs, your own companies, your own local producers, guaranteed offtakes, you're never going to keep them in business. And if they can't stay in business, no one will sponsor a business plan. So I don't think we've got a funding problem. I think we've got a problem around not making our own SMEs or uh, entrepreneurs attractive to DFRs. And that's a problem. It's a gap we have to bridge with immediacy. Yes. So again, I guess that loops back to the policy and what governments are doing to enable and, and to, to, to create that, that environment for SMEs that, that allows them to have um, security that, that we have a market that they can go to a funder to an investor and say, well, yes, we are secured for this period of time to give them confidence um, to, to be able to release those funds. But how about, I mean, the DFIs themselves, is there scope that they should also maybe try to match the, the requirements of the funding that they pro, pro, provide to, to the level of businesses or the, the kind of entrepreneurs you see on the African continent? Look at that, and you know, you've got international DFRs and then you've got the domestic DFRs, right? And, and, and I think we have seen some movement on the international DFRs recently, uh, DFRs or DFAs. Uh, you know, the America, US, DFA, for example, you've had the Europeans, the French. Um, so you are starting to see some movement. But, but at the end of the day, uh, DFRs, in my opinion, because they're developmental in nature, and what you're trying to solve here are developmental issues. So healthcare and solving a healthcare problem to make a country more productive and enable economic growth, particularly in a least developed or emerging economy, is a developmental issue. So DFRs have to arguably operate more competitively than commercial institutions that are borrowing new money. And that would be my big critique right now, is that there isn't an alignment of the requirements, which I've discussed earlier, but they're also, they, uh, they're not, you know, if they're going to, give you funding on a commercial basis and you can go to any bank and get the same commercial rates. And what are you really achieving here? There's got to be that developmental element and it's got to, they got to view each project that's developmental very differently to a commercial enterprise. Yes, that's very clear. So give us an idea, you know, from what you've seen so far, we, 
we've found ourselves in this place in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which has really uh, highlighted the situation on the continent and the need to do something to change it. And so far, there is a lot of movement uh, from Cape to Cairo, companies and, and governments are coming together. There seems to be a lot of activity going on. What you're seeing right now, what has happened so far in response to the crisis that has been facing us? Where do you see the African pharmaceutical and vaccine manufacturing sector in 10 or 20 years time? And what are the three things that you think this must happen in the next five years in order for us to actually get to even halfway, three quarters to where we need to be with local production on the continent? We're at a very critical phase. The next 12 months are critical. We're going to be make or break in the next 12 months. So what, what we do right now, if we don't implement and seize this opportunity now, here in and today, because I know what's going to happen. We've watched this movie many times before. When a, pen, when a crisis dissipates, then you go back to your old habits and you say, oh, well, let's just forget the localization. So we've got to strike while the iron is hot. And for me, that's a 12-month uh, window period. If we don't get it right in 12 months, I'm afraid we're going to lose this opportunity and the status quo and worse will remain. Okay. So what do we need to do? Three things. Number one, we, we've got to make sure that we get, uh, and I'm just talking vaccines for the moment, right? Because I've said we must focus on where the volumes are and where the priorities are, and it's vaccines and ARPs, right? But let's just, let's just stick to vaccines for the moment. Okay. Africa has set itself to produce 60% of its vaccines locally by 2030. That's in, you know, it's in a few years' time. Um, how do we get there? Number one, we need to make certain that we've got the technology partners on the continent. Okay. And if you get technology partners, then you can start getting some certainty and predictability. Um, number two, we need a reorientation, a reshaping of the global and domestic procurement dynamics and mechanisms. Okay. Put very differently, we need to guarantee to local producers on the continent 10, 15-year contracts with uh, guaranteed offtakes. Okay. So we need to say, look, we're putting up a capacity to make 1 billion doses, and by the way, this is the stated ambition of Aspen is that we scale up from 300 million, we've got up to 300 million uh, COVID vaccine dose capacity right now. It, we've got an ambition to scale up to 1.3 billion okay, over the next three years. Now, we need to know that those 1.3 billion are going to be consumed. So when the next pandemic comes around, we, we know we can press a button on 1.3. Put differently, we want to have capacity, one dose for every African. One dose, one African, basically. That's a 1.3 billion mark. So if we don't get these guaranteed offtakes, then expect when the next pandemic comes along that you're at the back of the queue and you suffer the most. No continent has suffered economically more than Africa has during the COVID crisis. It's, it's a well-known fact. And part of the reason is because you can't open up your economies aggressively enough because you haven't vaccinated enough people. So that's number two, reorientation of, uh, of, of, of the global and domestic procurement mechanisms. Okay, the third and final issue is the policy issues around promoting local manufacturing and or localization. Okay. And I've, I've spoken about a few of these things, including um, expedited registration for products that are being produced locally in country. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about a suite of incentives. So for example, as an African company, you are up against your peers who are operating in special economic zones, they get preferential tax rates, in some cases, they get a zero tax rate for 10 or 15 years. 
they get infrastructural support and or subsidies. So there's a whole suite or range of incentives. We need to customize those for uh, African manufacturers on the basis that this is going to give you incremental growth and incremental taxes that you don't have um, if you are importing products. And by the way, if you're importing products, one of the biggest problems you've got is that you're funding these trade deficits usually in a dollar denomination, a hard currency based, and it's more costly and expensive when you do that. So those are the three things. Let me just summarize them again in the order that I raised. You need technology partners, number one. Number two, you need uh, uh, international uh, multilateral and domestic procurement agencies and governments to procure locally from you, uh, the local producers. And number three, you, you need a, a policy implementation that includes a localization policy implementation that includes a suite of incentives that allows you to compete domestically and globally. That's the three point plan that we need. Excellent. So basically, technology, intelligent cooperation to, to create the right kind of partnerships that enables what we're trying to do. Uh, markets building the, you know, uh, the domestic and the and and influencing or having conversation at an international level to make sure that both mechanisms are supportive of the industrialization project that Africa has set itself on. And then finally, um, creating the, the, the right kind of incentives, building a policy environment that has ease of doing business that is conducive for pharmaceutical manufacturing businesses to thrive. That is very clear. Uh, Stavros Nicolau, the group senior executive at Aspen Pharmacare in South Africa. Thank you so much for coming on to the HSS podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Lenis, thanks. Uh, the pleasure's uh, been all mine. And thanks very much for both the opportunity to participate in this, but, but also more importantly for bringing uh, exceedingly important topics into conversation that will hopefully assist us in moving the debate forward. But more than a debate, we need implementation, as I said earlier. So uh, to the extent this has assisted uh, to raise a red flag around our lack of implementation, then I think this has been a very successful podcast and I wish to thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today as we were taking stock of the progress being made on the continent towards vaccine manufacturing with Stavros Nicolau, an industry titan and the group senior executive at Aspen Pharmacare in South Africa. If you support our work, please like, share and subscribe to our podcast. We would also like to hear from you. So do please send us your feedback and your comments. Thank you for watching.